But we're going to talk about, I think, some very important issues. Obviously, today we're not going to capture every issue uh, on the legal side, on the technical side, or others. But these are, these are essential issues to talk about. And we've got some really, really great panelists uh, to, to discuss the issues. The Cato Institute uh, 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 filed a brief uh, in a case called Inri Epic. Uh, this was a, uh, an appeal by the Electronic Privacy Information Center of the Verizon order. That's the original order uh, that, was, that was released in June um, showing that the government was requiring Verizon to turn over data reflecting the telephone calling information of all its users. Um, Cato, Cato filed a brief in this case, not because we necessarily expect the court to take it on. I think there'll be uh, times in the future when the court uh, takes these issues up and they may ripen further. But we thought it important to educate the court, the public, and frankly ourselves about the legal arguments and the legal issues at stake here. Very, very briefly, I'll take you through uh, what the Cato argument was, and then we'll hear from our panelists who are a, a, a great group of lawyers and advocates uh, to talk about their particular issues. Uh, we perhaps will talk amongst ourselves and then we'll, we'll take it out to you for, for some Q&A as well. Our argument to the court uh, first was statutory. The relevant standard of 215 is often, I think, somewhat deceptive uh, to readers because they fix on the word relevance. But obviously, you read a statute with all of the terms in mind, and there are two words in the, in the phrase surrounding relevant that I think are important. Uh, an application to, to the FISA panel uh, requires a successful application We'll have uh, information showing uh, uh, that the information, uh, the, the uh, tangible things sought are relevant to an authorized investigation. <clears throat> My analysis of that statutory language put aside the question of relevance and focused on some of those verbs. R <laughs> is the present, uh, the, the, the present tense of the word to be. So at the time of the application, for a, a, a warrant for, for uh, tangible things, relevance has to be shown. That means there has to be an investigation present, presently existing when the application comes in. It has to be relevant to an authorized investigation. Authorized is the past tense of the verb to authorize. That means the investigation must already have been authorized at the time of a relevance determination. Based on this appeal to Warner's English grammar book, the statute does not allow a court to permit what it did in the Verizon order under Section 215. I think that's an important argument. It's important to be able to read. We also made constitutional arguments that I referred to earlier uh, and, that, and that may come up on, on this panel as well. One is that this is a general warrant, and it's a general warrant flatly proscribed by the Fourth Amendment. The phrase in the Fourth Amendment that proscribes general warrants doesn't inquire whether or not the government is being reasonable. They are against the rules entirely. But we also make the argument that, that it is unreasonable to gather information about all Americans' telephone calling information. There are no limits. There's no limiting principle if, if that's allowed under, the under an interpretation of the statute. Finally, uh, particularly at the behest of Randy Barnett, who, who co-authored the brief with me, we argued that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Panel violates due process in its operation because it is not a court. Courts, we, we assume, a, are a certain type of thing. There are judges. They generally wear robes. We respect them. But there are also appeals. There are also open processes. There are also appeals to higher courts. There are public decisions, public appeals, and public rulings. And so the FISA panel, which we do not call a court, is just a panel. And its operation to deprive telecommunications companies of property and the data that they own, and to deprive us of our privacy in, and our property and information that we hold with telecommunications companies is a violation of due process. That's an argument we put forth. Uh, the document's available for you to pick up and read if you're interested, but we've got a lot of legal things to go through with our panelists, and we're just going to go down the line from left to right, taking a few minutes from each of them. So let me first uh, start. All, all the bios are in the, the book that we published with Professor Donahue from Georgetown. Please welcome Professor Donahue. Thank you. That's fine. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. It's it's a delight to be here and to have an opportunity to engage in conversation. Uh, there are three things I'd like to uh, suggest uh, when I say argue uh, in today's uh, remarks. First is that 
the telephony, the bulk collection of Americans' telephony metadata is contrary to the entire intent of Congress in enacting the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Act. Uh, second, that it violates the statutory provisions of FISA. And third, that it is unconstitutional. Uh, so on the first point, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was enacted in 1978 following the Church Committee hearings as a way to respond to broad surveillance programs. It was specifically intended to prevent the NSA and others who had engaged in a wide number of broad surveillance programs from uh, actually conducting these types of activities. And the way it did so was by targeting on foreign intelligence, uh, by ensuring that the targets be foreign powers or agents of foreign powers uh, or involved in international terrorism, by ensuring that a probable cause standard be met, that somebody was a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power, and by heightening the protections afforded to U.S. persons, both in the collection and then in minimization techniques that followed. Uh, in contrast to this, what we've seen with the bulk collection program is the particularization that's otherwise required by FISA has been really swept away. Uh, the protections for U.S. citizens have been diminished. It is all telephony metadata that is now collected. Uh, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which was seen as a way of protecting against this kind of activity, their role has fundamentally shifted from what it was envisioned by Congress initially. Uh, initially, Fisk's role was very narrow, and this is part of the justification for not having adversary counsel at the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Their role was narrowly to grant orders or not, the government having established in their application that the target was a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power or engaged in international terrorism. What we've seen with the orders that have recently been released is that Fisk has actually kicked this decision to the National Security Agency. So, um, so what we're finding uh, to the to, sorry to the NSA. So, so what we're finding is reasonable articulable suspicion is actually determined by the NSA uh, and not by the court itself. Instead, the court grants a general order. At the same time, the court is now issuing memorandum opinions, which was not a role envisioned by it. And we now have found out that those memorandum opinions include carve-outs for the Fourth Amendment, uh, creating within the special needs doctrine an exception that the Supreme Court itself has not recognized. Uh, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has begun to refer to its own opinions as precedent for granting future orders. And all of this is being done without any adversarial counsel. And this has really affected, I think in many ways, the depth of the constitutional analysis, certainly, that the court has been able to do as far as we can tell from the opinions that have been released. So on the first point, the entire orientation of the bulk metadata collection is contrary to the design of FISA. Now let's move to the second point, which is the statutory provisions. Uh, I think there are three important ways in which the telephony metadata program under Section 215 actually violates the statutory language. Uh, first uh, is with regard to this relevant to an authorized investigation, uh, which was just touched upon. Uh, first, the word relevant is being interpreted right now to mean uh, Everything uh, is relevant to counterterrorism. So the idea is that all telephone calls are relevant to authorized investigations to uh, find out if there are any terrorist threats. In the same way, all email communications would be relevant. Uh, in the same way, all financial records would be relevant. All banking records would be relevant. Indeed, this word and the way that it's been interpreted uh, by the legal authority, or by, by the legal analysts, um, at, within the intelligence community, if we look at the white paper, if we look at ACLU versus Clapper, and if we look at Judge Egan's opinion that recently came out, the way it's being interpreted is so broad as to be really absurd and really nonsensical. Uh, there are no limits on that relevant standard. The connection to an authorized investigation, which was already mentioned, the thing about authorized investigations under the Attorney General guidelines is that they have to be met prior to the collection of information and yet they're collecting information that will be relevant to subsequent investigations that have not, the investigations have not yet come into being. Uh, the Attorney General guidelines also require that the information to be collected be specific. They're very careful to say at a preliminary stage what's allowed at a threat assessment stage, preliminary stage, and then at a full investigation, what kinds of tools can be used based on the level of uh, concern or suspicion, reasonable suspicion, uh, to the extent of probable cause when warrants can be used, that an individual has engaged in criminal activity. Um, and in fact, uh, the telephony metadata program does not do this. The second statutory provision I want to bring to light is the statute requires that the information obtained from Section 215 be otherwise obtainable through subpoena ducis tecum. That's actually in the language of the statute itself. Uh, and what's remarkable here is you could not obtain the bulk 
telephony metadata of all Americans by subpoena, even a grand jury subpoena. Uh, we could not convene a grand jury in Bethesda, Maryland, just to see what's going on in Bethesda, right? That is patently illegal. You cannot use grand jury subpoenas for fishing expeditions, which is precisely what this is. Um, subpoenas are uh, specific. They deal with a particular target or individuals, and they relate to past events or past crimes. Uh, this program is being used to anticipate potential future threats. That is not how subpoenas are used. Uh, and perhaps most remarkably, in the March 2009 opinion, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court itself recognized that this information could not be obtained via subpoena. So it wrote in its opinion, this is uh, Judge Reggie Walt, uh, Walton, wrote in his opinion that this information could not be obtained by any other legal instrument. There was the only way you could do it was Section 215. And what's remarkable is that's actually acknowledging it's illegal because the statute requires that it be obtainable by other means. And then he goes on to say, but the government swore under oath that it was vital for U.S. national security and that it would police the system. Now, this was a way of addressing that for almost three years, uh, the NSA had been submitting identifiers to the database without first ensuring that there was reasonable articulable suspicion to the point where of 18,000 identifiers submitted per day, only 1,800 had reasonable articulable suspicion. So the court was very upset that because they were using authorities that they could not otherwise use and they had promised that it was very important for US national security by swearing under oath um, and they promised to police themselves but they did not, uh, the court was very upset. Um, this opinion, I think, is disturbing at many different levels, not least of which is its open acknowledgement that this program violates the statutory language. Uh, the third uh, and final statutory point I'd like to bring uh, is FISA already accounts for pen register and trap and trace. There's an entire subchapter focused on pen registers and trap and trace and what steps have to be met by the government in order to obtain an order to get a pen register and trap and trace. And what this program amounts to is really an end run around the other requirements in the statute that already provide for these authorities. Okay, so moving to the third uh, area that I'd like to address, and that's the constitutional considerations. Uh, and here I would like to suggest that this program is unconstitutional. Uh, Smith versus Maryland is the case that's most relied on in this, uh, in this instance. And the government relies on it. Judge Egan relies on it in her August 2013 opinion. In fact, it's the only Fourth Amendment uh, case that she directly cites, aside from Fisk's own precedent, which is redacted uh, in the opinion itself. Now, in Smith versus Maryland, uh, this is a case in which there is a woman up in Baltimore, Patricia McDonough, who was uh, robbed, and she described afterwards to the police a description of the man uh, and the uh, 1975 Monte Carlo car that she had seen at the scene. She subsequently got phone calls in her own home from a man who identified himself as the robber. Told, he told her to go out on her front porch where a 1975 Monte Carlo drove very slowly by the front of the house. Um, the, then he uh, said to her very obscene remarks. He made intimidating remarks, threatening remarks. She called the police. The police saw a 1975 Monte Carlo in the neighborhood, took the license plate, found out who it belonged to, and went to the phone company and said, may we place a pen register on the line to find out if he is calling Patricia McDonough. They did. That same day, he called Patricia McDonough. They used that to get a warrant. They went to his house, and there was the phone book open to Patricia McDonough's name with the, with the tab folded down to her name. Okay, now on the basis of those facts, the Supreme Court said, you do not have an interest in third-party data. In this case, that the phone company was able to find out the numbers that you were calling from your phone when this pen register was placed. The problem with relying on this case is, uh, is manifold. Uh, first of all, this, this case, um, basically relied on a situation where the police already had reasonable suspicion that an individual was engaged in illegal, threatening, and abusive behavior. Uh, second of all, the kind of information that you could obtain uh, at that time was simply the number you were calling. Uh, we ha now have a changed technological circumstance that from telephony metadata, you can find out not just who you're calling and who is calling you, but where you are located from the trunk identifier information. Forget GPS uh, GPS chips. This is just from the trunk identifier information in these calls. This was before cell phones, so this follows you around wherever you go. 
Uh, they can find out uh, if you're calling a rape crisis line, a suicide hotline, a political party headquarters. Uh, they can find out social network analysis, who's those important, who those important nodes are. The technologies and the level of intrusiveness on privacy for what is now possible is dramatically different from what was possible in 1979. Uh, and the government would have uh, us all treated as though we were Michael Lee Smith in this case, as though we had engaged in all of these activities and been brought to a level of reasonable suspicion. Um, I, the final point I would like to mention with regard to the constitutional considerations uh, is that this is a general warrant. Uh, general warrants are prohibited by the Constitution. Uh, that is why the Fourth Amendment was introduced in the first place. It was because writs, uh, writs of assistance were being used uh, by Prime Minister Pitt uh, in the United Kingdom. He actually wanted to use these to crack down on illegal behavior in the colonies. And the increasing use of general warrants was... Uh, was sharply contested by Americans, by James Otis in one of the most famous orations. John Adams, who was there later, wrote, then and there the child independence was born. We later had Madison and the construction of the Fourth Amendment to prevent general warrants, which is the ability to collect information at any time on an ongoing basis without any prior suspicion of wrongful activity. Um, this amounts to a general warrant and is, as such, uh, it is odious to the Fourth Amendment. Um, and so I would conclude by saying that uh, both in terms of the trespass that's involved in this case, the general warrant considerations, and then, of course, the reasonable expectation of privacy. So regardless of whether you adopt Justice Scalia's approach uh, in terms of looking at trespass and general warrants or uh, other justices' approach in terms of applying reasonable expectation of privacy, as Justice Sotomayor does uh, in Jones in the GPS case, uh, these programs, and particularly the bulk collection of Americans' metadata, uh, is unconstitutional. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next, uh, Jamil Jaffer from the ACLU. Thanks, and, and thanks for the invitation. So Professor Donahue has set out, um, I think very compellingly, the, the case against the call records program, both the, the statutory case and the constitutional case. Uh, I think what I would like to do is just try to focus a little more closely on some of the arguments that the government has made in response to the case against uh, the lawfulness of the call records program. And uh, I see all of this through the lens of the litigation that the ACLU brought in, in the first days after the call records program was disclosed. We filed a case which is called ACLU v. Clapper. Um, it's in the Southern District of New York. And we make uh, essentially three claims. The first is that the statute violate, the program violates the statute, that it exceeds statutory authority because um, uh, only by completely mangling the meaning of the word relevance can you possibly arrive at the conclusion that, that all call records uh, indefinitely uh, are relevant to an ongoing investigation. Uh, the second claim is that um, the call records program violates the Fourth Amendment, um, that it intrudes on a reasonable expectation of privacy and that it's unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment. And the final claim is that uh, the program violates the First Amendment because it imposes a substantial burden on First Amendment rights, on associational rights and, and, and expressive rights. And it's not narrowly tailored to, uh, uh, to the government's legitimate interest in, in keeping the country safe. So those are the, you know, those are the three, three claims. And, and uh, to anyone who litigates these issues, what I'm about to say now will not come as a big surprise, but maybe to the rest of you it still does. When the government responded to our case, when it filed its... Um, motion to dismiss, uh, and when it opposed our, our motion for a preliminary injunction, uh, most of the government's energy was spent not addressing the merits of the program, not defending the lawfulness of the program, although the government did try to do that. Uh, most of its energy was spent trying to argue that the court had no business reaching the merits. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, 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 it made that argument in several different, different ways. Um, but the one I want to focus on right now is, is standing, the standing doctrine, because this is something that has, has been a bar to surveillance challenges uh, over, the last, uh, over the last 12, 13 years. Uh, well, over the last uh, two generations, uh, but especially over the last 12, 13 years. Um, so the government's argument in this case is that the ACLU lacks standing, lacks the right to challenge the constitutionality of this program because... Uh, although the ACLU can show that its uh, call records were collected, uh, it can't show that the government actually accessed the call records. We don't know what's happening on the, you know, on the back end. Now, um, I think it's worth pausing just to 
just to reflect on the audacity of that argument, because the, the government for the last decade has been arguing in court that people lack standing to challenge uh, surveillance programs because they can't show that their communications were collected. And now we walk into court with evidence that our communications were collected, and the government says, actually, it's not enough to show collection. You have to show that we actually accessed uh, the communications, too. Um, and obviously, you know, if you, if you, uh, the government's logic insulates the, the call records program and, and, and virtually every foreign intelligence surveillance program uh, from judicial review. Um, and I think that that is problematic. And, and, and I say that for several different reasons. The first is that, uh, you know, obviously, if the government is engaged in unlawful surveillance, uh, we should want a court to stop it. Uh, that was the point of having a Fourth Amendment. It was the point of having a constitution to impose limits on the government's uh, power. And here we have, uh, you know, everybody recognizes, at least sort of rhetorically, that there is a limit set by the Fourth, Amendments on, uh, Fourth Amendment on the government's surveillance power. But in reality, that's not a limit that can be enforced uh, because under the government's theory, uh, nobody has standing to challenge uh, this kind of surveillance. So that's one reason I think it's, you know, it's problematic. But, but, but a second is that, um, you know, even if this, this kind of authority just sits on the books unused, even if the government never uses this authority, uh, the, the very existence of surveillance authority has an effect on individuals' rights. People act differently when they know they could be surveilled. That was the, you know, that was the insight of the panopticon, right? The idea is the government doesn't have to be watching you. They just have to create the possibility of watching you, and then you will act differently. Uh, I don't think that's a, a, a controversial claim or, or, uh, or a new one. I think it's widely accepted. Uh, but if you keep these programs on the books, keep these statutes on the books, but you insulate them from judicial review, then even unlawful authorities will sit on the books having that effect on the, on, on the, the way that uh, ordinary citizens interact with one another and interact with their government. Um, and, and that's a problem. And then finally, I think it's a problem for the government because... Uh, to the extent that the government's authorities are legitimate ones, the absence of any judicial uh, uh, certification of that legitimacy is a problem for the government. It means that pe there's doubt about the legitimacy of even surveillance authority that is consistent with the Constitution. So I don't think it serves the government's interest uh, to have these statutes uh, insulated from uh, judicial review categorically. So... Uh, you know, those are my points about the government's procedural arguments. arguments. Just, just do I have two more minutes? Is it, just, uh, you know, a couple things about their arguments on the merits. And, and Professor Donahue has already, you know, addressed this at some level. But I want to talk about the, 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 what the government said when we said that this authorizes everything, that this authorizes you to collect everything. The government said, no, 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 you, 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 you are being, uh, you, you guys are hysterical. The ACLU is uh, blowing all of this out of proportion. Uh, this kind of surveillance is limited in two very important ways. The first is that this is a foreign intelligence investigation, and foreign intelligence investigations by their nature are far-reaching. Uh, they last a long time, and the fact that we can do this kind of surveillance in a foreign intelligence investigation doesn't necessarily mean that we could do it in some other kind of investigation. And then the second argument they made is that call records are different from other records, maybe even unique. Call records are different because... Uh, they allow the government to, uh, to mine them for relational information, associational information. You can, if, you, if you get all the call records, you can find out who's calling whom, and that's not something you can do with a subset of the call records. And call records, the government says, are unique in this, uh, in this sense. Now, I think that neither of those limits actually withstand scrutiny. And, and, and the first one, the foreign intelligence investigation argument, uh, it may be true that foreign intelligence investigations are... Um, tend to be uh, far-reaching and long-term, but that's also true of many other kinds of investigations. Uh, it's, it's true of, of uh, insider trading investigations. It's true of international fraud investigations. Uh, it's true of many uh, drug trafficking investigations. There are a lot of drug trafficking investigations that are international in scope and they go on for many years. Um, so I don't think it's a real limit to say, well, this is a foreign intelligence investigation and therefore you don't have to worry that the same argument wouldn't be marshaled uh, in the service of similar surveillance and criminal investigations. And then uh, on, on the call records are different argument, um, I think call records are, um, are, are perhaps different in that you can get relational information from them, but they're not unique. 
Uh, you could get that kind of information from medical files, right, from medical records. If you were investigating uh, uh, Medicare fraud or something like that, uh, you might want to know uh, uh, who had been in, in contact with whom, who had prescribed what to whom, uh, which doctors were making uh, uh, um, uh, an inordinate number of claims. Uh, I think that would be very useful information. If you were investigating insider trading, you might want that kind of information too. I mean, if you have been reading about or read about the Galleon investigation, the Raj Rajaratnam uh, investigation, um, you know, it was all based on associational uh, theories, theories about who was association, associating with who, who was calling whom. Uh, and if the government had had this kind of database for that kind of inf uh, investigation, I think uh, it would have been extremely helpful to them. So, uh, you know, that's just to say that when the government says, don't worry, this is narrow, this is just call records and it's just foreign intelligence, I, I, I don't think anyone should buy it. Um, and, and I'll end with this. Uh, the, 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 the takeaway is that this debate we've been having about, you know, is the call records program lawful? Uh, is the call records program a good idea? It's an important debate, but really the debate isn't about the call records program. It's not about uh, the use of this kind of surveillance power in terrorism or foreign intelligence investigations. It's a much more general question that's presented by this kind of program. The, the, the question is, should the government be allowed to collect everything on the theory that one day somebody might do something wrong and it may be useful to the government to have some of this information, all of this information, in order to investigate that person uh, and to investigate other people who might have, had, uh, uh, might have been in touch with that person. That's the question we should be asking. And I think if you present it that way, uh, it becomes a little, harder, um, a little harder to accept that this is a good idea. Thank you, Jamil Jaffer. Yesterday on the Drudge Report, a link to this event referred to our next speaker as Google's privacy czar. Uh, I love the attention that it brought. I don't know what David Lieber thinks of the attention <laughs> it brought. David Lieber from Google. Th thanks, Jim. I've been taking a, a lot of good-natured ribbing from my colleagues, but I'm looking across the, the row of my panelists here, and I've got to say I feel a little bit more like Admiral Stockdale than I do on a, a privacy <laughs> center. So. And they got that. I know. You know. For those of you who are under 30 and watching this, uh, just Google it. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, thank you, Jim, and thank you to the Cato Institute for having me here today. Just a, a brief caveat before I start, I want to uh, make it clear at the outset that I'm speaking in my capacity as a privacy policy counsel for Google's public policy team. Uh, I don't have any insight into or any familiarity with any FISA demands that we might receive, assuming that we receive any at all. So with, with that out of the way, um, in recent weeks, Congress has rightfully turned its attention to the important issue of transparency and Specifically, Representative Lofgren and Representative and, and Senator Franklin, Franklin have introduced bills that would enable but not require companies uh, to publish aggregate statistics about the volume, scope, and type of FISA demands that they may receive. We've been supportive of that legislation, along with another, uh, a number of other companies, trade associations, and, and civil society groups, and we're looking forward uh, you know, to a broader campaign to codify uh, the principles that are re re reflected in those bills. Uh, and the bills themselves advance bedrock First Amendment principles that under normal circumstances wouldn't require, note, uh, wouldn't require codification, uh, but unfortunately do in light of the position that the Department, Ju of, uh, Department of Justice and uh, our national security agencies have taken uh, before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, also known as the FISC. So backing up, as most of you know, in June, we did file a motion for a declaratory judgment before the FISC, uh, asserting a First Amendment right to disclose aggre aggregate statistics about the FISA demands that we may receive, assuming that we receive any at all, and that we've chosen to take an aggressive posture before the FISC and on the issue of government transparency shouldn't come as, shouldn't come as a surprise either, I think, to our users or to the broader public. Uh, as many of you know, in 2010, we released the first government transparency, our first government transparency report, in order to shed more light uh, and, and more insights into um, government requests that we get, not only from law enforcement agencies here in the United States, uh, but also from uh, governments abroad. We were the first service provider to, to, to launch a transparency report, and we've aimed with each iteration of that transparency report to provide more granular data, more data that would be useful in, in informing the broader policy debates around surveillance. And we 
release that transparency report on a, on a biannual basis. So for example, earlier this year, after a long negotiation with the Department of Justice, we for the first time published numbers around the number of national security letters that we receive. Now we publish them, albeit in broad strokes in bands of a thousand, but we, we are looking with each iteration of our report to provide uh, new, new types of data. Um, so in our case before the FISC, the government is effectively asking the court to place its imprimatur on the proposition that the government should be the arbiter of who gets to speak about the issuance and receipt of FISA demands. That's just a striking departure uh, from important First Amendment principles. And so I want to focus on just briefly our two areas where I think the government's position is particularly untenable in light of First Amendment principles regarding restrictions on speech. First, the government's position that uh, service providers can't uh, provide information about the FISA demands that they may receive is tantamount to a prior restraint. And prior restraints, as the Supreme Court have, has noted in the past, carry a heavy presumption against constitutional validity under the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has noted on a number of occasions that prior restraints are among the most serious and least tolerable infringements on the First Amendment right, and that it's only in truly exceptional cases where the right to free speech uh, must give way to a countervailing and compelling governmental interest. In a case uh, in 1931, Near versus Minnesota, uh, the court noted that that prior restraint doctrine may be applicable and speech might have to yield in circumstances where the, the country was at war. And the court sort of posited two hypothetical examples where that may be the case, uh, where there was going to be a publication of the sailing dates of military ships and also where there was going to be the publication about the number and location of a troops at a given time. And what the court said was under those hypothetical scenarios that there may be an argument there uh, for an exception to the prior restraint doctrine. But these types of national security risks are qualitatively different in character than truthful speech regarding aggregate statistics that service providers receive about FISA demands. In 1971, uh, in the landmark Pentagon, papers case. This was New York Times versus the United States, which was a per curiam opinion. But in that opinion, Justices White and Stewart noted that any national security exception to the prior restraint doctrine must be construed narrowly, and that such a restraint would only withstand constitutional scrutiny where the publication would inevitably, directly, and immediately cause harm to national security. Second, any restrictions on the ability of service providers to speak about FISA demands that they may receive are also, uh, also amount to content-based restrictions. And like prior uh, restraints, content-based uh, content restrictions are particularly disfavored. Um, and, and where there is a content-based restriction, the government has to, um, and, and, and there's a prohibition on speech, it has to be narrowly tailored to advance a compelling governmental interest. Uh, that, is that, there, that is that there are no less restrictive alternatives that would be at least as effective in advancing the government's objectives. So in our case before the FISC, the government has argued that its proposed bar uh, on speech is narrowly tailored precisely because there are uh, no less restrictive alternatives other than a blanket prohibition on the ability of providers to disclose aggregate statistics about the nature, type, uh, scope, and volume of demands that they receive. And that position just strikes us as anathematic to the First Amendment. If you are taking a closer look at analogous cases in the NSL context, we've seen courts either strike down or effectively rewrite statutory provisions that impose gag orders on the individual receipt of NSLs, on providers who receive these from speaking about uh, their receipt of those NSLs. And notably, these statutory gag orders actually do apply to speech about receipt of individual NSLs. And even in these particularized instances, instances the court has looked upon these uh, statutory gags with deep skepticism. Our motion for declaratory judgment before the FISC, by contrast, doesn't ask for the ability to speak about individual demands that we receive, uh, but rather to speak broadly about aggregate statistics concerning FISA demands that we receive. Um, we don't think that transparency uh, and, nationally, uh, and national security are mutually exclusive ideals. And, and to be clear and to be fair, uh, I don't know that the government's position is necessarily that, that, that that's true. Um, they've laid out plans to disclose additional information uh, about the FISA demands that they issue, and at least in part, 
uh, partially the scope of those demands as well. Um, but it is anachronistic, I think, to live under what effectively amounts to a licensing scheme whereby the government gets to choose who speaks about receipt of FISA demands and just how robust that speech is. So we're looking forward uh, in the coming months to working with Congress on, on legislation that would codify the type of transparency we'd like to see and, and continuing to work uh, before the FISC to advance our arguments in that respect. Thanks. Thank you, David Lieber. Uh, a, a special note of thanks and praise to Paul Rosenzweig, uh, who, who isn't going to speak in parallel to the rest of the speakers on this panel. Uh, he's, he's not in agreement with all of us, and so he's especially welcome uh, to... To, to, and we, we appreciate having him here with us today. Paul Rosenzweig. Well, thanks. I, I do feel a bit like Daniel in the lion's den or, or, uh, or you know, the Christians in the lions, pick your, pick your metaphor. I also feel a little bit like, um, like I've gone back down the rabbit hole. About 10 years ago, I was running around the country and I was giving a talk, the title of which uh, it was about the Patriot Act, and many of the same issues recur, and the title of which was uh, John Ashcroft is not Darth Vader. Uh, so I've decided to re repurpose that talk and begin by saying Eric Holder is not Darth Vader. Um, uh, it strikes me uh, that it's important to, to make a couple of distinctions here. The first is between uh, law and policy. Uh, the question of the lawfulness of, of the NSA's activities uh, is different from whether or not they're wise uh, activities. I I would probably join most of the panel in thinking that if I were the policymaker, I'd have picked a different set of results. But the question for this panel is one of legality, and that raises the, to my mind, pretty, pretty uh, obvious question, you know, what makes something lawful? And I would have thought an executive branch acting pursuant to what it perceives to be legal uh, uh, legislative enactments that it gets from Congress that it takes to the designated judicial officer that the law, the statute designates for that determination, follows what they say, changes what they do when that judicial officer pushes back and says, no, you, this far but no farther, or you've gone too far, cut back, as the opinion set from the uh, Fisk Court seems to demonstrate, would be acting in a lawful manner. Uh, it would be what we would recognize as law. And, and I guess uh, one of the first points of disagreement, and I'll just do this briefly, is it strikes me that it has to be a court, Jim. I mean, it, 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 besides having judicial officers, uh, it, uh, it has all the appurtenances of, of a court. Uh, and if it's not a court because it's an ex-party proceeding, then every other ex-party proceeding is likewise subject to some form of, uh, uh, of challenge. So, so when... When you or, or, or when Jamil says that it's not subject to judicial scrutiny, I would, I would respectfully disagree and say it's been subject to extended judicial scrutiny, just not of the form that you think is the appropriate level of judicial scrutiny, but it's the form that we got you know, from 1974 going forward. It, they, they follow the forms, and if you don't like the answer at the end, um, you know, that's, not the, that's not the process problem. That, but necessarily one of the inputs. So I wanted to talk about the two inputs, the constitutionality and the statutory provision. If I have any time, I will come and talk about uh, prior restraints, but probably not. Um, on the constitutionality question, um, I, I think that in the end, Laura should be right, uh, but she's not, at least not as the, uh, in the way it is right now. I, I did a lot of work on a case called U.S. versus Jones last term, um, which involved the large-scale collection of metadata, in that case geolocation data from a GPS tracker on a man's car. And our argument, both in the, uh, in the DC, uh, initially in the D.C. Circuit, was that there's a difference between getting a single data point about uh, the, the man's travel from one place to another and what was in that case 28 days of continuous logging of everywhere he went. And I, I accept the premise that... Uh, that that larger scale of data transforms the nature of the inquiry. Uh, and it, uh, the analogy I always came up with was it's a bit like a punctilious painting, right? A single dot is, of color is one piece. You step back, you, it's not just a green dot anymore, it's a beautiful painting by Surratt. Uh, we lost. We lost in the DC Circuit. Judge Sentel uh, captured the other side of the argument quite well by saying zero plus zero plus zero 
equals zero. Or if each single dot can be collected without any violation of the terms of the Constitution, then collecting a lot of dots is equally not a problem. When we brought that to the Supreme Court, they decided it on another ground. There are some um, uh, indications in some of the concurrences that the court might be willing to change that, but they haven't done that yet. And the Fisk Court, as an inferior court, is pretty much bound by that determination. We may get a determination now in one of the forums that arises from this. Uh, I think Jamil is likely to get his standing at some point along the way here now. But, but to date, you know, the constitutional argument, much as it might appeal, just doesn't carry, um, just doesn't carry forward, at least, uh, at least not under existing court precedent. And you can say the court deviated from the original understanding of generalized warrants. You can say a lot of things, but you know, courts have faced the question of the collection of large numbers of pieces of data more than Justin Smith, and every court that has looked at any amount of collection of lots of, uh, lots of data has said Smith controls. Uh, so, and, and the parallel banking case is called Miller. Um, uh, so then that gets me to the statu uh, statutory question of the question of re relevance. And here, I, 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 the point I would make, and this is where I'm going to actually get to these slides, is that I think that there's actually, um, that uh, Laura needs to actually convince Jamil, and Jamil needs to convince Laura. Uh, I agree with Jamil that the data is robust and creates a large set of relational bits of information from which you can glean a lot. And I also agree with him that it is, that, that argument can't be cabined uh, to call records, that it will apply to financial data, it will apply to anything else. But if it is that good a, a bit of data that creates a relational database that is of use, then there is a reasonable basis to believe, and Jim left out those two words, reasonable basis to believe that it's relevant to an authorized investigation. Two pieces about that. The first is the authorized engage, investigation piece. The paradigm that underlies what Jim was talking about, about uh, historic, uh, prior authorized investigation, is the paradigm of a single instance of an investigation. We've got a murder, we're investigating it. That ignores the reality that has become part of investigative practice mostly since uh, the 1950s in the mafia of what we, call, what we call enterprise investigations, which are authorized investigations, but they're large-scale investigations, not about single historically uh, complete acts of criminality, but ongoing acts of an enterprise's criminal activity, the government would say, with a fair degree of, of uh, persuasiveness, I would think, that, that such an enterprise investigation is what they are doing now with respect to al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in Iraq, which pick, pick your terrorist group. Um, so that gets us, the last piece, to the question of relevance in this relational um, data. And that actually is why I have this, because uh, this is not my work. It's the work of a sociologist from Duke, whose name just left me. Um, uh, putting together, oh, I don't even need to, to clear up, putting together data from uh, a historical uh, created by an American historian named David Hackett. Uh, this is relational data involving just two uh, pieces of data, uh, the names of men living in Boston in 1765, uh, uh, 1775 and what club they belong to, uh, what social club they belong to. Now, anybody who knows any American history knows that these social clubs were the uh, fonts of uh, the uh, terrorist rebellion, uh, the guerrilla war against the lawful authority, uh, the British, of course, and that would be the British's counterterrorism characterization of it. Uh, the sociologist in Duke, whose name still escapes me, took this data, did just two, ju just that, and this is a social network that reveals quite clearly uh, the various groupings of people in their clubs, contains a lot of information about a lot of innocent people who weren't proto-revolutionaries, as well as information about Sam Adams and all that. But if you go into the center, there's one guy at the center who, if you did the analysis, would be the linchpin, the guy who falls out of the equation as the one man you would want to start to track. He might not be the leader, but you'd think he was a pretty important thing. And by the way, uh, uh, for another Google exercise, the other man, Thomas Oran, I'd never heard of, but it turns out he's one of the unsung heroes of the American Revolution. Uh, somebody who had a significant role that we have forgotten with the history of time that this has served to remind us of. Um, 
uh, I invite you again to Google his name and you'll learn about him if you're under 30 or if you don't study American history. But what this suggests to me, yeah, under, <laughs> uh, under 230, but what this actually suggests to me is that um, in the dispute, uh, as I posit it, between Jamil and Laura, Jamil is right, that uh, the relational bits of information are extremely robust and extremely strong uh, predictors. Uh, that's what the statute says we should have, and that's what makes it relevant. I would go back and change the constitutional predicates as, as a way of getting at it. Paul, your 45 seconds are up. <laughs> Did I go too long? Thank you. Thank you. No, Sorry. No, fine. Um, uh, a brief word uh, of any panelists with regard to any other, and then before we go to Q&A, we have only a very short time, I'm sorry, but we'll try to do some Q&A from the audience as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. I'd like to respond to a few of the points that you raised, Paul. Thanks very much for them. Um, Judge, I would add to uh, Judge Sentel, Judge Egan, of course, interestingly, said you don't have a Fourth Amendment search uh, arise ex, ex nihilo, as she says, right, from, from non-existence. Um, the problem is that, again, she's considering Smith versus Maryland, where it's one pen trap placed on one phone with the level of technology nowhere near as advanced as it is today. So the privacy interests have fundamentally shifted, and therefore the level of intrusiveness that is represented by these interests has fundamentally shifted. And I would say that the Supreme Court agrees. So let's take a look at those cases. U.S. versus Jones, which you mentioned. Um, I'm sorry, my condolences about the case. Um, but you awesome. won. You won in a shadow majority, right? So you look at Justice Alito's opinion in that case, and you look at Judge so Justice Sotomayor's opinion in that case, and she says that she would not extend third-party data um, to, to consider it outside the protections of the Fourth Amendment. And the reason she says that is because 24-7-60-60 surveillance uh, for a 28-day period is too much. And we see this shadow opinion. What we've seen with new technologies really in the last decade on the court, if you look at Kylo, thermal imaging case, you're starting to see tension between justices who consider technology from a trespass perspective mm -hmm. and justices who consider it from an application of cats. This is the telephone booth case in 1967 when the Fourth Amendment came to protect people, not places. When an electronic bug was placed on the outside of the telephone booth, it was the act of closing that booth uh, that protected the individual inside the two-bit better, you know, inside from when he placed his phone call. And what we're starting to see is tension between the application of, of cats and a reasonable expectation of privacy and trespass, which is Justice Scalia's point. Uh, so if you look at Kylo, it's decided on trespass grounds, right? If you, but you see this application of reasonable expectation of privacy in the, in the other justices' opinions. Um, he cites Entick versus Carrington, for instance, in that case. And he goes back to that, goes back to Entick. In uh, Jardines, we recently have the dog sniffing cases. You have the same thing. You have, once again, it's decided on trespass grounds when the dog is on the porch of the home. And yet you have Justice Egan saying, or Justice Kagan, sorry, saying in that case, and by the way, if we had applied cats, we would have reached the same result. So I think to ignore the court's opinions in these cases ignores the fact that the Supreme Court seems to agree that surveillance conducted over a multi-day period when you're accumulating this pontalistic uh, exercise, the mosaic theory, shall we call it, of intelligence, or, or the Surratt theory, or maybe the, you know, uh, whatever the, the, the artist might be that you would adopt, that when you do this, you are talking about a different level of intrusiveness of privacy. And as Justice Scalia remarked, uh, in these cases, the fact that we now have cast does not annihilate the protections that were in place when the Fourth Amendment was first introduced. Jamil Jefferson, your one minute. Okay, so, so uh, two very quick points. The first is I think that there's something vaguely comical about the level of denial uh, on the part of uh, some defenders of the program. I don't include Paul in this, but, but um, okay. the, uh, Jones is a case that directly addresses this kind of surveillance, uh, mass surveillance of, uh, of metadata. Um, and yet, if you look at the, the Egan opinion or you look at the, the David Chris law review, that, uh, law review article that, that a lot of the defenders of the program are now citing, both of them deal with Jones in a single footnote. Uh, and on the other hand, they deal with Smith v. Maryland in many, many paragraphs as if this 30-year-old case decides this issue. And Smith, as Professor Donahue has already pointed out, was this extremely narrow case involving much more primitive uh, technology. And to say that Smith justifies a program like this, it's like, you know, you've you got a herd of elephants dancing on the head of a pin. It's not, it, it's not that kind of case. It's a case that was very, very narrow. Uh, and then just as to the, the FISA court, why we complain that FISA court review is not sufficient, it's not just that it's structurally insufficient in that uh, it hears only from the government, it meets in secret, it rarely publishes its decisions. I mean, all of those things are troubling. 
uh, but it's also jurisdictionally uh, prevented from reaching the kinds of issues that we think the court should uh, and that an ordinary federal court would address if an ordinary federal court uh, had jurisdiction to reach the uh, to reach the merits. Uh, things like uh, you know the, the First Amendment claim, uh, the, the the FISA court has said it can't it can't address claims like that. Uh, we brought a case um, in the FISA court uh, three years ago asking the court to. Uh, review the constitutionality of the FISA Amendments Act, and the and the court said we don't have the jurisdiction to review the facial validity of a of a surveillance statute. So uh, you know, even if you, if if the structural problems don't bother you, um, the court is jurisdictionally prevented from reaching many of the things that um, that are being debated here today. Admiral Stockdale, I assume you don't want to weigh in on this particular debate. We have very very little time, but I and I'd like to take just one question, and I'd like to take a question actually because there's been good discussion on the legal issues around the 215 program. Does anybody have a question for David Lieber with regard to his uh, points of view? Over here, the blue coat, the light blue coat. Uh, hi, I'm Spencer Ackerman with The Guardian. Um, does Google have any corporate interest in non-compliance with any surveillance order? Uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question. Uh, so can you, can you, can, it is, yeah. No, can, can you just I'll expound on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, you know, as I've been covering this issue, we've heard a lot from uh, companies like your own about the need for transparency, to talk more fulsomely about these issues. And I'm wondering where the company stands on the actual substance of the surveillance and whether it seeks to resist being a part of the surveillance apparatus itself. And there have been some questions uh, raised by some people that perhaps the companies could try and actually force the issue by indulging in a kind of civil disobedience, by saying we're not going to resist the order and we're going to see if we can press the point and see if the government challenges us or does something like that. There are a few companies on the planet, I can imagine, that could actually withstand the legal challenges that would, would then result, and Google, I would think, is one of them. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if Google has any interest in that. Yeah, and, and that's, just, that's not a question that I could really you know, effectively answer for you, just because, as I mentioned, I'm a public policy guy, and you're getting into questions now that I think, you know, really are best directed at people who candidly can't even talk about them. So, I, I, I mean, it, there is, obviously, there's a little, there's a dance that goes around with this, but I think that just underscores the importance of transparency. We'd love to be able to talk a little bit more in detail uh, about how this process works, assuming, again, that we receive any of these demands at all. But really delving into that territory or even sort of dipping your feet into it, it's, it's dangerous terrain. But that said, I, I will say sort of backing off, broadly speaking, um, you know, we have pushed back on, on government requests, again, broadly speaking, uh, on many different occasions before. Um, there are instances, obviously, where those pushbacks have been public, but um, there are instances, too, uh, you know, where we've assumed the same sort of posture. So I'll leave it at that. Two, two times during this short panel, uh, David Lieber has uh, delivered laugh lines, uh, I think required by the legal circumstances of his company. Uh, the laughs are tragic comedy. <laughs> we have to conclude here, uh, uh, and we'll resume with the next panel very soon, a few minutes of break time, so you might be able to step out, uh, but do hurry back. We'll begin in a few minutes with the technology panel. Thank you. Thanks to our panelists.